I did, man. I had a great Thanksgiving. I, uh, I got some wonderful pictures of my grandson with me and my kids, and I, I, I really, uh, man, I'm a blessed guy. And I thought about it today. I was like, man, the, the great gift of, of, that we've been given, that no one else, any of the followers of Christ have been given, man, we don't teach people a religion. We don't give them a list of do's and don'ts and, and teach them these doctrines. That's part of it. Those are, those are great things. They're gifts. But we're not giving Christ with all those things. It says, man, uh, in the scriptures it says that we declare the praises of the one who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. All the attributes of Christ. It's like, man, what a great, what a great calling. What a great mission that is in our life. And I used to think you were saying, I was right there, man. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be doing that if I heard you. I shouldn't do that to him, but he does it. He takes me out there. And it's like, man, who loves me like that? How could I ever give my heart to anything or anyone that loves me like that? So that's, I just want that to be a thought in your mind. Uh, let's open up our Bibles. I got a couple different scriptures that we're going to look at today. One explains the other. Um, um, so let's go to the book of Matthew, chapter 1, and we're going to look at um, the lineage of Christ. It's super important, but before we do that, um, we're going to say a prayer. Father God, Lord, I just, more than anything else, just help us to see the glory. Help us to see the goodness, Lord God. The thing that you've given us is that you've torn down the veil that, that hid your frame, your glory, your magnificence from our eyes. We couldn't come into your presence but because of what you've done, now we can come into your presence. We can see you. We can marvel. We can fall at your feet. We can be broken. We can be melted. We can be remolded. Lord, and I pray that you would do that, Lord God. I pray that you would win our hearts over and over and over, Lord God. I pray, Lord God, that you would take any inclination of stubbornness or resistance or unbelief, Lord God. And I pray that you would replace it with trust. And I pray, Lord God, that you would exalt yourself in our lives, Lord God. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen? All right. Um, so this is out of the book of Matthew, chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Christ Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. For Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Jera, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Abinadab, Abinadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Solomon, Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David, David, the father of Solomon, whose mother was Uriah's wife. These are all important things, and I don't think we always catch it, but we're going to look at some of these things. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Zechoniah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the time of the Babylonian, Babylonian exile, Jeconiah was the father of Shethael, Shethael, the 
father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Elahim, Elahim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Super powerful stuff, uh, and when you really do the investigation, it becomes more and more powerful. Um, you know, uh, I would like to say that everyone, almost everyone who studies the Bible hates those lineages. They just don't get it. They're like, oh my gosh, this is an endless litany of who's who, and I don't even know who they are, and I don't care. But these are treasures. These are wonderful treasures, and you really got to do a little bit of digging to get the beauty of them. But, you know, one thing I've learned about the Bible is that if you read the Bible, not just pick and choose, kind of like do one of these flip the pages and go and look at things, but you kind of read it through. If you stick with it, God will take you here, and then six months later, you'll get to here and go, oh, my gosh. You know, in the book of Acts, Peter, who was a guy who was uneducated, he was blue collar. He knew about fishing and he knew about fighting. Those are the two things Peter knew about. But when the Holy Spirit came into his life, you know what he understood? All those stories that he heard when he was 12 years old, when he went to a synagogue with his father and his family, that he wasn't paying attention to, because I guarantee Peter wasn't paying attention to him. All of a sudden, they clicked. Light went on, and he was like, oh, my goodness. And God made these connections, and he gave the greatest sermon of all times that God used to bring 5,000 people to faith at one time. That's what the Holy Spirit will do, but you got to stick with it. You got to stay through the course because if I pick and choose, if I kind of just stay here and then kind of drop it, I miss it. So I don't want us to miss it. Go with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and this is Paul putting things together in a way that only the Holy Spirit could do. Verse 18 says this, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. When he's talking about the cross, he's not just talking about the one act of Jesus being crucified. He's talking about the sum total of Christ's life, who he is, where he came from, what he came to do, how he came to do it, and what he accomplished. So the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are being perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent. Uh, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what has been preached to save those who believe. He used from time and time again men who were uneducated, men who came from nowhere, men who were marginalized, women who talked to their families and other women who were, mar they were the nobodies in this world, and he used them to literally display who he was to someone he was calling out from death to life. And man, he's done this time and time again. And this scripture tells me that he was pleased to do so. That this is like a major thing where he's like, this is my greatest glory. He goes further on to say this. Brothers and sisters, 
Think of what you were when you were called. For not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. At least that's true for me. Um, Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chooses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. For God chooses the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chooses the lowly things of this world and the despised things of this world, the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. For it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom of God, that is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Those things, the greatest thing that God implants in us is when we truly know we're saved, is we understand that the gift that we've been given has nothing to do with what we brought to the plate or to the table. It's from him beginning to end. Not even 1% can be put into my account. Literally, before it, in heaven, when we meet up, no one's going to give a high five to someone else and go, man, we made the greatest choice. Look at all those idiots on the other side. Why weren't they as smart as us? No one will get to say that. We will look at God and we will say, surely this was a gift from beginning to end. And we were the recipients of it. He goes further on to say this, and so that it is with me, brothers and sisters, that when I came to you, I didn't come to you with eloquence or human wisdom, for I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know, listen, nothing while I was with you except Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with fear and trembling. The great and mighty and educated Paul, Paul, who knew his stuff, this guy knew his stuff, and what did God do? Took this guy who was a PhD scholar, better than anyone else, and he said, I'm going to send you to a people that you're going to know. All your knowledge isn't going to mean anything to them, and I'm going to plant words in your mouth, and you are going to be my instrument to bring a people who don't know anything about God to know about God. And in the end, you know what you're going to know? That you were just my missionary and not the cause of this salvation. And Paul knew it, man. He's like, man, if I'm going to boast in anything, I'm going to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. And because he, he boasted in the cross of Jesus Christ, another thing happened as a result of it. He said, the world crucified to me and I to it. When he understood the love of God, he understood the grace that was given him, he understood the mission that he was called to, he's like, you know what I can't boast in? Me. I can't boast in me. So let's finish this scripture and then go on to our sermon. He says this, For I came to you with weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and eloquent or persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power and God's power alone. Praise God. Praise God. Um, let me tell you a quick story. I was at a, um, at one of my old churches. A guy came in, him and his wife. He was a great guy. I mean, just a great guy, beautiful human being. And uh, you immediately knew this guy. As soon as you get to know him, you loved him immediately. And six months, he invites everyone from our Bible study to come to his house for a Christmas, a Christmas party. So we all go, and uh, there's that part where everybody's kind of telling their life story, and it gets to this guy. I don't want to mention his name um, because my wife tells me not to do that. Um, and he tells the story of his life, 
And he, as many of us, had a pretty dysfunctional uh, home. So he tells us that he was one of three kids, grew up in Humboldt Park, uh, all this humble beginnings. And his, his father, everybody seems good until his right around his 13th birthday, his father decides to have an affair with another woman. But it gets worse than that. He doesn't just have an affair with another woman. He has an affair with a 15-year-old girl. Now, there are a few things in this world that gets me angry. That's one of them. That's one of them. I can tell you the truth. His head would have been in a basket if that was my daughter. So everyone's like, ooh. And then he goes on to say he's pregnant, this 15-year-old girl. She's almost like a second cousin to the family. And the family's response was, now you have to marry her. So he takes the girl back to Puerto Rico, marries her, and leaves the family. And I remember this story. And everyone was shocked, but they kind of moved on, not me. I couldn't move on the whole night. It was like, oh, my God. This is the craziest story I've ever heard in my life. And all I could think was to myself, and I'm pretty open and vulnerable. Sometimes my life goes, dang, you tell too much. But I was like, even I wouldn't tell that story. I was like, there's no way that I would have told that story. I would have excluded that part of this guy's life. Even though it really didn't have any effect on him, this guy was a great guy. The guy who was a brother in Christ, he was a great guy. And I mean, his life was good. It was marked by the goodness of God, the grace of God. But this thing was such a black mark on the family. They're like, oh, my God. One of the things that I have learned is this, is that every Christmas I always go back over the story of Christ. When I first got saved, um, I was so hungry to know God, man. I couldn't get enough. I couldn't get enough of podcasts. Well, they didn't have them back then. But like radio shows, preachers, all these different things. Anywhere someone was talking about Jesus, I was listening. And one time there was this guy, Arnold Murray, who was a cult leader, a Christian cult leader in Tennessee. And he had very crazy doctrines. And one of his doctrines was that Jesus had to sneak into the world through a back door because Satan was so powerful that was the only way that he could come in. You ever hear that lie? And I remember me, I was like maybe six months into the faith, and I was just like, oh, I for some reason, could recognize a lie, and I was like, you should be choked for this lie. I literally was like, if you were here, I would rip your tongue out of your mouth. Sorry, too much Jerry. But man, I was literally like a dog who was angry for his master. I was like, that's a lie. What I have since to learn, as God has shown me, that God did what he did to show his beyond surpassing greatness. See, anyone can do great things if they have everything with good material. But God does what he does with broken material, with a broken place, with a place where there's no good thing. Let's do a brief study of these people who God attaches himself to. Let's start with the father of our faith. Oh, Abraham, he was a great guy, right? No, no, he wasn't a great guy. And I can prove it to you. Jacob came from a family of idol producers. That means they created idols in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. That's equivalent in the spiritual world of being a drug dealer, a major drug dealer. 
They may not have caused the spiritual death of thousands of people, but they participated in it by making idols. But God called this man from this spiritual abomination. It gets worse. Abraham, the father of faith, denies his wife two times, says, don't tell people that you're my wife because if they do, they'll try to kill me. One time, it causes her to be grabbed by another man who's going to sleep with his wife. And he doesn't care because he's trying to save himself. This is the father of faith. This guy made major mistakes. He was a family divider. Now, I don't know that everyone would agree to that, but the truth of the matter is is this. He chose Ishmael over Isaac, and Sarah said, no more, you're not choosing him over your son. This is the one who God has chosen. Get rid of the other one. And this then was passed down to his son. So let's look at Isaac, who was no prize himself. What did he do? He denies his wife, puts her in harm's way. He was also a divider, loved his son Esau because Esau was a man's man and had it all going. And Jacob, kind of like a mama's boy. He didn't like that. And he divided the family. Once again, there's few things in this world that get me angry. Family dividers is something that gets me angry. It's someone that I don't like. I don't like people who pit family against one another. And that's what he did. So what does he do? He produces Jacob. Jacob, he was a schemer, an idolater, a family divider, and just an overall shady con man of a guy. But yet God claims that he is the God of Jacob. Not once, but tons of times. He attaches himself to this person that you or I, if you knew him, you'd be like, listen, I don't really want to talk about him. This guy literally, even if he was your brother or your cousin, you don't mention that you're related to Jacob. And that's who God puts in every single list. It goes on. He puts in his family line, Tamar, who was a Canaanite woman. That means she was raw and base, had no sense of morality at all. Her sole purpose in life was to prosper others. She would be a pawn in society. No rights, no privileges, no claim. She would have been someone who would have been forgotten and nobody would have cared. But yet God chooses to put her in the line. See, nobody's in this line just because it happened. It's not just an accident. No, it's a deliberate choice. Nobody, and I know that this is an argument and I'm not willing to argue it now, nobody comes to Christ because they made a good choice. They follow Christ because Christ calls them and they come out of the grave to life. That's how it happens for everyone. Go to church as much as you want. Don't make you saved. What does make you saved is when you're called and he gives you his Holy Spirit and seals it inside of you. That's what gives you salvation. So he goes, he calls Tamar, but it gets better from there. He also calls Rahab. Rahab, who was Rahab? A prostitute, a brothel keeper. Then he calls a guy named Jesse. Now Jesse had the right lineage. He was a good guy, someone you'd want to be related to. But when you learn about Jesse's story, you know what he did? He divided his family and he alienated his son because he was too prideful to say that he was his father. So what did he do? He takes his youngest son 
because he's a black mark on his life and he throws him out in the desert. So David has to grow up his entire life with this empty hole because he was rejected by his father. Real great guy, right? But yet still, God goes through all the trouble to put his name in that hole. Let's look at David. David, oh, David, everybody loves David. All the pastors, they love David. Not me. I'm like, David, you're just another, you're another guy of grace. I'm not here to point shade at it or point fingers at anybody. But he was broken and broken his knee. Listen to David's life. He was empty, longed for valiant significance. And because he longed for valiant significance, he drank from many, many wells and pursued many, many things that damaged many, many lives. He was a killer. Not only did he kill, it appears to me the scripture said he was good at it. He was a neglectful father, ruined his family. He didn't divide the family, but he certainly wasn't a great father. What goes worse, he was an adulterer. Then when his adultery scheme didn't work, he conspired, he murdered his best friend, and then he pretended he was this baby to his wife. Presented himself as, I'm the beneficiary. But yet God says, this is not okay. Crazy. Just like that song today. He leaves the 99 to chase after one. There's no mountain he won't climb up. There's no shadow he won't light up. He chases after us. And the greatest thing that I have in my treasury is that truth. It's not what I bring. It's not what I do. It's not my gifting. It's not my calling. It's that he has chosen out of all the people in the world to love I'm going to explain in a little bit why that's so important to us. Let's keep going on. Solomon, oh, he was a great guy, right? He's super gifted, but his gifting turned to prideful. He was the son of an illegitimate woman. He was an egotist, a hedonist, a self-pityer, a compromiser. Talk about defects in character. This guy had it all. He was an addict. He had 400 wives and 700 concubines. I think maybe he might have had a sexual addiction, right? Rehoboam, oh, that's his son, another egotist. But he was worse. He was a tyrant. He was a family divider, a nation divider. All the kings that came after, these men who came from this line, this lineage, murderers, exploiters, manipulators, thieves, conspirators, cowards, egotists, and every one of them were given privileges upon privileges. And what did they do? They usurped the glory and the power of the Lord and took it for themselves. And yet God takes a page out of his book so that he can name them. Crazy, right? If I think about it, in my opinion, this is a who's who of people not to mention at a Christmas party. Amen? You're like, man, I don't need to tell you about that family line because that's a crazy family line. So what does this tell me? This tells me this. For me, it says that God displays his glory in thousands upon thousands of ways. But I think to myself, I want to see the beauty of God. You know what I do? I look at creation itself. When the Hubble telescope would come out with all those pictures of the universe, you've all seen them. Some of them are so amazing. I look and like, oh my gosh, this isn't just a random happening. This is a work of art. Sometimes I see the glory and the beauty of God greatest when I'm on Lakeshore Drive. When I, that's, that's my job in the winter. I'm on, on, on Lakeshore Drive to remove snow. 
What I love to do as a 31st is get out of my truck when the storm comes and go to the lakefront and see the waves coming and dissolve the shades of gray. And I see it in the coldness and I see the snow and I see the snow and I look back and I'm like, I was crazy. Who is this? Because of what you need. I see his, his glory when I look at birds and how they operate in my front lawn and how they take the worms and fly up in the springtime and give it to their babies in the tree right outside my house. Or when I see a bluebird that's sitting on the edge of my house. I've never seen a bluebird before, and they're so vivid and so beautiful, and their eyes are so sharp, and I'm like, man, that's cool. I mean, I've never seen one like that. And I think to myself, if you create such beautiful things, how can you do it? You said, not you do. But in all these things, all I can think to is this. There's no greater demonstration of his mastery than in the skill that he used in creating the kingdom of God. Why? Because God used toxic, broken, utterly warped and distorted material to create a masterpiece. He created a temple where he would hold his glory out of stones that looked like me. You don't pick the stone that looks like me. You pick a better stone, stronger, more straight, not as warped, not as scarred. My life is scarred. My life is tainted. Things I've done are horrible that I can't even mention in public without shame. But yet, he still picks me out and puts me into the fire. This is the glory of God. And I think when we understand that that's true of all of us, Somehow, the birth of Christ becomes even more precious. God built a road to enter into the world he created using infected material in a poisonous environment. He has created a kingdom that brings good to the world. As I was meeting with someone today, I was thinking to myself, possibly at one point I was in my 17th individual meeting in Oxford, North Avenue, and the place went to one person. Me. Why? Because I was certain that only I could make my life fit that. Only I could give me what I wanted. So it didn't matter. People were pawing for me to get what I want. But yet now he's taken me out of that so that I, not with skill, because that's not why he picked me, so that I could sit across from someone that he chooses, he calls, he empowers and brings, and all I have to do is tell them about how great that's all I have to do. And you know what? It's not up to me whether they believe. It's not up to me whether they do anything. All I have to do is to profess it over and over and over. And I think to myself, could there ever be a greater simplicity? Could there ever be a greater simplicity? I thought to myself as I was sitting there, I was like, there will come a time that those who have put their faith in Jesus will be called up to the front where we will be embraced by our King and He will turn us around and He will bring those that He brought to us to interact in our life that we would be a witness and a missionary to them and He would go, look at them. This is what I did. For great is this treasure in You're my treasure. We're our treasure. Why? Not because we were skilled or great or better than anyone, because ultimately, 
because all we get to do, let's keep looking back at this because it gets better as I keep looking deeper into it. I believe that God has called those who were dead to bring life. I believe God uses those who are in chaos to bring stability and prosperity. That's what the kingdom of God entails. His birth is intended, I believe, to bring joy to life in my life. One of the things that I thought about joy was this. In this body, in this life, joy is a tricky thing. You know why? Because joy is a permanent thing. The problem is, I am temporal. This flesh is temporal. This world that we live in is temporal. One of the greatest mistakes I think that we make is we equate joy with happiness, comfort, and pleasure. But the truth is, all of those de- things depend on happiness, comfort, and pleasure. They depend on circumstances. That means I could be happy when I have a good job. I could be happy when I'm healthy. I could be happy when someone loves me. I could be happy when I get married. I could be happy when I have a grandkid. I could be happy when my kids succeed, all those things. But what happens if those things go away? The happiness goes with it, right? So joy is not based on circumstances. Joy is a permanent thing. And it really doesn't depend on circumstances at all. It can only be found in absolute assurance. Let me give you this quote by C.S. Lewis. He was this really great preacher, a philosopher, and a follower of Christ. He said this. He said that joy, wait, I'm going to give it to you exact because it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. It's one of those things where joy is very hard to define because we live in the temporal world. We can't understand it. We really can't hold it. It is truly a gift, and only those who are saved can have it. He said this, joy can only be joyful as the desires of satisfaction and perfect completeness appear to be impossibly beyond our reach. You know what that means? As you look at that list, you think to yourself, God had a plan. And from the very beginning, what happens? He gives power and all these these privileges to human beings. It takes the privileges and takes the opportunities and what does he do? They squib one after another after another. Abraham, uh, not Abraham, uh, Adam, Eve, they had this great thing. They're made in God's image. And what do they do? They choose to believe in God. They choose to take the power, not trust God, and they choose to be God themselves. What do they do? They give birth to two sons that hate each other, so one kills another. Then that guy leaves, and what does he do? He gives birth to someone who now feels it's okay to kill multiple people. And from there, in a short amount of time, the world's in utter chaos. Over and over and over and over and over. God's plan seems to get further and further and further away. And when I read that list, it reminds me that joy is found not in the circumstances of what I can understand, but in the one who suddenly restores it. It's Jesus. It's God. He's my joy. Why? Because he is who he is. My joy is not because things are going well for me, not because things are spotless, not because I'm perfect, not because my marriage is absolutely blemishless and without problems, not because everything goes my way, but because he told me that he chose me, and when he chose me, he would show us the world, and one day we would be with the Father, and it would be so much better than I could ever, ever imagine it could be. And you know what? It seems to me that my joy gets better the crazier the world gets. 
So let's look at this. Christian joy is not found in possession that gives you satisfaction, but it's found in a future produced by a person who is absolutely trustworthy and unfailing. This scripture enumerates those things, those ways that he has been faithful. Write them down. Remember, all those times, even before you recognize his work, write them down. You know, I can remember one time, I didn't have money to get home. I was blind drunk. I got on the train to get home from the one-step drive, and the guy goes, you don't have no money, get off the train. And you know what I did? Because I was drunk and stupid, I got in between the two train cars and drove to the northwest side of Tennessee. What happens when you're drunk and driving on the outside of a train? Well, you could slip and fall. Did I slip and fall? No. I got to my location. I didn't do that once. I did it twice. One time, I was blind drunk, got in the car. The cab driver was, I think I told you this before. Little, I, I was so drunk, the cab driver wouldn't take me. And he's like, you don't even know where you're going. Get out. Where did he drop me? 1985 at the corner of uh, Armitage and California. Back then, Armitage and California was my magic again. And I remember, I got on and and literally that street that I thought was dead came to life in two minutes. People that I didn't even know were there suddenly, and they were like, this guy's an amazing marvel. And they literally got up and they're walking over, and I got up to the thing, put my back to the wall, and I'm like, all right, here we go. And I thought for sure it's either me or them, and I knew they were going to win. What happened? He drops full up at the street. He says, hold on one minute. What the heck are you doing here at this hour of the night? And I'm like, arr, arr, arr. <laughs> I don't know. What does God do? He provides for me. He was the one who introduced me to my wife, who should have left me alone. Follow the Lord. If someone has hold of the truth and they don't take hold of it, don't was a Christian. If I was counseling my wife, I would have said, this is not the guy for you. God doesn't want you to be with that guy. He wants you to be with a Christian man. This guy is insane. But what does she do? She falls in love with him. And she sticks with him. That guy is amazing. He's holy. One time, what does God So drunk, I left the money on the floor. Floor. You know what that money was for? Christmas gifts. You know, kids worth a year money and uh, all this money. Package that you put on the floor that you've got to put two and two together. That's for you. What does she do? Her friend went into something else. She had to she goes, it's all right for me. It's mine. Little did I know the that six months later, I would be brought to the place where I would literally be on my knees. And I'd say, I have nothing, God. I come before you with one. I don't know why you'd want me. I don't know why you'd choose me. I don't know what I have to offer. But I know what you have I need. And I got it. I got it in its fullness. But you know who doesn't get it? See, that's why he picks those type of people. Because the ones who think they got stuff in their hands, 
God doesn't really have much to offer them. Let's look at that for just a minute. What does it say in Romans chapter 11, verse 33? Oh, the depths of the riches of his wisdom, the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. First thing I have learned in this story is this, is that his power has no limits. What does God do? God demonstrates that he calls the least and he uses the greatest. That means the people who think that they're the most or the biggest or the most skillful and the most wonderful is like, listen, buddy, you're only here because I give you the breath in your lungs. And the ones who say, I'm a loser, he goes, you're not a loser because I chose you for a purpose. He calls those who are not to confound the ones who want to rise up and say, look at how great I am. Look at how capable I am. To which God says, I don't need your capability. What I want is your surrender. So for me and the likes of me, it was easy to surrender because I was absolutely broken. Let's keep looking at this truth because it's beautiful. The scripture tells us that he plants kings into the ground. No sooner are they planted than he blows on them and the ground remembers them no more. He changes the direction of his heart like he changes the current of a, rim, a, a river. God uses the mightiest of all, in a story quite literal, he uses the mightiest nation, Israel, the greatest nation ever was, and their greatest ruler to cause his son to be born into the city that he tells is going to be born in 16 years later. The only reason that Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem was because they had to go for a census, and that was the town in which they were born in. Why? Because God said to all those who are being called out, this is where my name is. This is where your answer will come from. And you know what I'm going to do? This? I'm going to use the greatest nation in the world as my path, as my path to get my people where they need to be. These two insignificant people from a peasant town in Nazareth, he calls them Man, can I tell you something? The people who are successful in this world, that doesn't mean much. The people who are confident in themselves, that doesn't mean much. But to me, I'm confident in something, but there's no reason to be confident in it. I look at myself, and it's hard for me to see worth. It is hard. It's always been that way. I have failed so many times in my life. Willful, not willful. And you know what? I think to myself, this is who I am. When I'm down, when I'm out, when I'm alone, because I still feel it in some little bit of my life, the thing that always comes up, that always grabs into me and pulls me back in there, is that God was You know what? When I don't have anything else to tell anybody, you know what I tell them? I call you the one who believed and saved Abraham. All I have to do is just keep showing it over and over and over. Does that make sense, everybody? Let's keep moving forward. There's no government. There's no culture. Not frail humanity. Not even the resistance of a power hungry. Not doubts or fears. Even the limitations of the flesh can stop his perfect salvation. Even the ones who reject him, as I understand scripture, 
only rejecting is because they have not been given a true time for reconciliation. Remember what Jesus would teach? He said, let those who are here, hear. Let those who have eyes see. You know why? Salvation is by love. It's not earned and it's not deserved. And it reminds me of this, and this is a precious truth. Third thing, salvation is a gift. This story reminds me that it is an unearnable gift. Even today, all the good things that God has produced in my life, you know what I don't get to do? Take credit for it. All the defects and flaws that he's sanding off of me and the new life that he's producing inside of me, you know what I don't get to say? I'm a good person. You know who else gets to say this? Paul said this, 26 years ago, and people were coming in and saying, well, Jesus is not the only thing we need for salvation. We need some knowledge, and we need some that. And he goes, you want to hear a good story, Timothy? Here's a good story. Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Paul knew this. On his first day, he needed the Lord, and on his last day, he needed the Lord's grace even more. See, getting close to God doesn't make me feel better about myself. It increases the worth of grace. When I learn about his glory and his holiness, it doesn't make me feel good about me. It reminds me of how far and lacking I am. But it also reminds me this. That that guy was saved. That that guy was saved. That that guy and that guy alone is because of God's grace. Man, this is why salvation is a gift like no other. Amen? All right. His goodness to us is so good. I want you to remember this Christian Christmas that he created us to be the primary focus of his love. See, you weren't saved to get someplace with streaks of gold. You don't endure a life of misery so that somehow you could get to a place where all your problems go away. You're never lonely. You're never afraid. There was a great quote by John Piper one time speaking to a bunch of college students. He goes, if you could go to heaven and everything you've ever wanted was there, everybody you've ever loved was there, all the resources you ever want, endless limits, no limitations at all, would you go to heaven if Christ wasn't there? And you know what? I think that's true. And I think the truth is this. I don't care what I have. I don't care what I am. I don't care what I can earn. I don't care what I can get in this world. If he's there, Saving has become unearnable. Let's go and finish this up because we're getting close to the end. Amen? Amen. Amen. I want you to understand this Christmas that he created us uniquely. We have less power and less splendor than the angels, but only you know how to love us. Only us. Think of the most magnificent thing you've ever laid your hands on. For me, it would be our children. Salvation is most comfortable. I never think of the beautiful gift it is that you've given to us. But only you know Isn't that funny how sometimes we don't care what we have? Isn't that funny how sometimes we don't care what we have? God made you fearfully.
for one thing for you to do. He knew every one of them. Before one word comes to your lips, he knew it completely. Not one day comes into being without his explicit say so. And it is that love of God whose love is better. And you know what it reminds me also? About a bigger love by the Holy Spirit. And you know what it causes me to want to do? Love you. Because I don't love you enough. Just because you got baptized, just because you showed up, love only your love. Only your show. Before they start going, I want to finish up. The only test for us to experience the fullness of God's love is this. If Christmas comes, I got a remembrance day. I gotta, it's not the parties. It's not the stuff. And I don't think anyone thinks it's the stuff. But sometimes, you know what I think sometimes this is? Even if we value and elevate our family relationships to the faith, because they're different. You know what the number one idolatry in church is? Family. When I know the great love of God in Christ, and I see his whole plan, and I see the glory and the value of his choosing me, it doesn't make me want to do See, for me, I long to be loved. Never to feel never to be always felt rejected, always felt outcast, always felt like the same as you were. So when I love someone, say I love Clinton, I love them because Daddy, I'll give you my love because I was certain that her love was gonna make me feel full. And when I got married, But when I focus it on the right love, and I focus it on his love, and his love is not, I pick you because you have great potential. I pick you because I better act like. I pick you because you have this skill. I pick you because you look better than they do. No, no, no. He says, I pick you because I pick you. No other reason. And you know what that causes me to do? When I love other people, I say things like, I love you. you do makes me give you any more or less love. Clinton loves you better. Less, 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 less. Does that make sense to people? Let's finish up with this. I, by grace, to receive the fullness of God's love, have to accept the fact that before God I am empty-handed. I don't care how successful you are in this world. He didn't pick you for that. You want it all? Come to him empty-handed. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. I got nothing, God. What are you here for? I'm here for you. You and you alone. Anything you want. You just talk to me. You receive me. That's enough for me. And you know what he says? That's exactly what I want to hear. Everything I have, now is yours. I have no bargaining chips before God. I have no claims before God. 
give you that means in a very practical sense you can say I called in double time 68 bucks an hour for 12 hours you know what that would do for my Christmas budget but I can't be at work and be here at the same time am I getting paid for this not with God That means change my life. Far too many Christians that give away their life. You know why? They got stuck in their dreams. They want to be partners, but they never come to grips with the fact that they want to be one. See, your salvation doesn't make you a partner with God, it makes you a child. And you know what? As a parent, if I could hear one thing out of my kids that would make me happier than anything else, I'd say to him, what is your greatest gift as a dad that my kids would go, that you're my father and that you love me better than any of them. That would make me proud. And that's what God wants to hear in our life. So as we stand up, as we get ready for the end, I don't believe that God calls the undesirables and the rejected because he wants to be seen as inclusive. I think God uses this route to bring salvation into the world because he calls us to repent. When we think of repentance, it makes us think of sour face. Ooh, not repentance again. It's all the things that I can't do. No, no, no. When I think of repentance, you know what I think? I think of all the things that I want to die to so that I can have something better. That's what we want. So this Christmas... Pray for that kind of heart. Let's worship.